Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist. To focus on the emotional connection more than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Welcome, Feelin' Film listeners. I'm Aaron, and this is episode three of our monthly Connecting with Classics series, where my co-host Don Shanahan of Every Movie Has a Lesson and myself have a conversation about a widely regarded great film from the past. Don and I wanted this to be a participatory experience while encouraging you all to watch more classic films. So we'll be giving out some cool stuff at the end of the year for those who write and share reviews of the film or comment and discuss with us in the Feelin' Film Facebook group. These interactions will earn you entries into an end-of-the-year prize drawing for podcast swag and more. For listeners who do not wish to be a part of the discussion group, you can email in your reviews to feelinfilm at gmail.com, and they will also be accepted. All right, listeners, if you are not aware, March is Women's History Month. Aaron and I made it a point to research some of the best female performances of all time found on our goal list of the AFI's Top 100 10th Anniversary List. We didn't have to go far down the list to find the perfect film to showcase for the month of March. Slotted at number 16 on their original list and number 28 on their anniversary list is Joseph Mankiewicz's All About Eve from 1950. Before this podcast, this was a blind spot for both of us. That's the beauty of the Connecting with Classic series that we're doing because you can find new greats to enjoy even the host can. So um, for All About Eve, Roger Ebert starts us off by saying he called it the, quote, quintessential depiction of ruthless ambition in the entertainment industry. So we are in for a treat. And this was a first time for me. And for those folks who are into the show and and following our along from here, from here on out, spoiler warning, uh, we are in a podcast that is best listened to after you have seen the film. So turn us off now and come back later after we gave you that little teaser of treat and all that. But uh, from here on out, Let's talk about it. Awesome. All yeah, right. I'm excited. And this was a first watch for me too. And I did not know anything about it going in other than the record. Uh, this movie has a record, right? Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's always that nugget of Oscar fact every year of what film always has the most nominations. And we have three films in history that have had 14 Academy Award nominations and La La, 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 Land. La, La Land is one from a year ago. Uh, Titanic from 1997, I guess that'd be the 98 Oscars. And then this one, All About Eve, was the record holder for the longest time with 14. So the film itself was released in the fall of 1950, it, the same year as Sunset Boulevard. Kind of a frequently referenced competitor in comparison for their similar female-led stories and successes that year. But yes, All About Eve was the juggernaut of the 23rd Academy Awards, amassing a whopping 14 nominations, tied for the most in history. It stands as the only film in Academy Award history to earn four female acting nominations. Talk about perfect for this month's theme. Uh, in two each in the Best Actress and Best Supporting Actress categories between Bette Davis uh, and uh, and Baxter, Celeste Holm, and Thelma Ritter. That's four female acting nominations from one film in one year. All About Eve would lose in both of those categories with the four nominations of women, but it did win six Oscars. It won Best Picture, uh, the double winner of Best Director and Best Screenplay for Joseph Mankiewicz, Best Supporting Actor for George Sanders, Costume Design, and Sound Recording. 
A little side note here, Joseph Mankiewicz's brother, Herman Mankiewicz, was the screenwriter and won an Oscar for co-running Citizen Kane. So all in the family there in terms of Oscar stuff. Talented, talented guys. Holy oh my gosh. Cow. Yeah. I mean, talk about, I mean, I know we're going to go modern and say the Nolan brothers, but I, I, got, I mean, those. For writing, guys, yeah. I'm trying to those, think. You like, got the Coens, I guess, would be on that list. When you're comparing Oscars and such at the dinner table, mm-hmm. I mean, that you're talking all timers at this point. That's, right. That's a tough, tough competition. I mean, if we're comparing Oscars, it's, well, you got to go Mankiewicz and then you got to go, you got to go the Coens who have more Oscars than the Mankiewicz's, I think, because the Nolans don't have any. So yeah, yeah, that's, that's still a, boy, that's a last table supper I'd like to be at right there. Oh, it'd be fun. Um, and Baxter's villain, uh, Eve Harrington makes the AFI's heroes and villain list as the number 23 villain just ahead of, talk about this company, Gordon Gecko, Michael Douglas's classic character from Wall Street, and ahead of Jack Torrance's character from The Shining, played by Jack Nicholson. So that is high praise in my Nicolas Cage uh, SNL voice of that's high praise. So I, I really like this choice, actually. I think that she is absolutely one of the best villains I've ever seen. And she, she portrays a villain in a way in the movie that is less villainy, villainy. Um, She's almost, I wouldn't call it cartoonish at all. You know, she's almost like a dual protagonist uh, in many ways because and we'll talk about this later, but you can relate to her Mm -hmm. and the reasons behind why she does the things she does. And it's it's kind of a light villainy. Like she's not yeah. really trying to ruin people completely. Well, she is in a couple ways mm. in the very end. But yeah, yeah. Anyway, it's just very subtle, and I I enjoy that kind of performance. Yeah. No, I mean you look at that AFI list of heroes and villains, which I like a lot, especially because we're you and I are both shout out to Bibles and brackets on uh, on Facebook groups and all that. But uh, we are embitteredly entangled in brackets right now for like best movie characters and things like that. And I throw up my hands all the time because there's like places where like Groot beats some classic amazing character. I'm like, come on, it's Groot. He has no lines. Uh, but just um, if you look on that heroes and villains list, is it's really fascinating because. I think it's a good collection of villains for different reasons. Like I, number one is Hannibal Lecter. And I get why, I mean, it, it's Hannibal Lecter. I mean, the, 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 the spectacle that is Hannibal Lecter, the, 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 the air that is Hannibal, Hannibal Lecter. I mean, all those qualities that make a villain, a villain, you got him right there and just dialed to 12 because of Anthony Hopkins. But like, when you see Gordon Gecko down here and you see Jack Torrance on here, right next to Ann Baxter's Eve Harrington, it, it does make sense because the level of, what Eve is doing in the film is on a villain level. Yeah. It's not colorful, like a bond villain. Yeah. It's not, you know, the mustache twirling and all that stuff like that. It just is really focused. It's really sharp. Um, it's really, I don't know, just poignant in a way where, you know, she's the villain the whole time. But like you said, she's that almost that co-protagonist where it's that, it's that relatable villain. And, and I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think it works. Yeah, it, it, oh, sure. It, does. it, doesn't, have, it doesn't have the flash of, of, of a Bond villain or something like Jack Torrance and Gordon Gecko, but I think it fits and it's a great placement. Definitely. Further history going down the list. Um, The famous line from the film, Fasten Your Seatbelts, it's going to be a bumpy ride, is number nine on the AFI's quote list. And I bet Correction. Who- Correction. Because I'm glad you said that because it is a very famously misquoted line. It is not. Hold on, or fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy ride. It is. Oh, fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night, and it makes a lot of sense because of the context that that line is being said Mm -hmm. at a dinner party. Yeah, at the time, 
Margot is drunk and starting to just kind of unravel. And it's almost like, all right, it's time to put all our cards on the table. All the players are there. That scene, we could do a podcast on that scene. It is just, it's fantastic. And it's, it really makes this movie because it's like the centerpiece, I I think, between the introductions and then the events that will occur coming out of this party where everybody's motivations are. But that scene is so good. And and I just want to point that out because I I did notice when I was looking some things up that people misquoted this line, including myself. I've always heard it as fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy ride. Yeah. But in fact, it is the word night. Gosh, son of a gun. Um, I, I, a new piece of research that, that I landed on while looking up all about Eve, which I, we both kind of like, Oh, that's awesome. Is, um, the writers guild of America in 2016 kind of gave their, um, all time rankings of screenplays and which I, I'm going to use in reference for life now. And, um, all about Eve is ranked as the fifth best screenplay of all time. And that is behind number one, Casablanca. Which, hey, hey, nice job, February. You and I aren't going to argue with that. No, I will not argue with that. Number two, The Godfather. Um, I'm not going to argue with that either. That's an amazing adaptation. Um, Chinatown is number three, and Citizen Kane is number four. So you have that Mount Rushmore films, and then All About Eve at fifth. It is two spots ahead of Sunset Boulevard, the often compared competition from the same year. So, yeah, we're not talking about you know um, just some lucky screenplay or some studio product. You have the fifth best screenplay of all time here. Yeah, I think we're going to talk about that more in detail too. And it's it's good. It's really good. We'll yeah. leave it at that for now. Oh, absolutely. But that last, list last. is awesome actually. And I, mm-hmm. I agree with you wholeheartedly. People, listeners, check that out because if you love screenplays the way that Don and I do and Patrick, my co-host on the main feel and film line of uh, episodes, we all really gravitate toward a good screenplay. And I, and I think that's probably common for more critiquing kind of film watchers. Uh, the modern day blockbuster loving crowd, probably not Certainly. so much, but we all are just, we can be entranced by a screenplay and we can forgive a lot of movie wrongs or movie yeah. averages, I guess, <laughs> as long as Absolutely. the screenplay is completely great. And this one belongs high on this list, but use that list to seek out new two movies to watch. Absolutely. Yeah, last two nuggets for me on this little end of things. Um, It was up for National Registry Preservation in 1990, and it is still, for the millennials out there, it is 100% to this day on Rotten Tomatoes, unflinching. Yep, that is a fact. And it is, it, they do their ratings for classic films differently. There's some sort of like a, a I don't know how it works, but they have like a weighted scale. Mm-hmm. Um, that uh, I don't know the super details there either. I don't know the like weird formulas that they use, but it is at 100% and it, Definitely, in my opinion, I, I think it's worthy of it. But a um, couple other quick things about this one that are really interesting. This is actually based on a true story. Um, it's about a backstabbing in Hollywood that actually happened. Elizabeth Bergner was a European stage and screen actress hired as a young fan as an assistant in the early 1940s, only to have the girl try to steal her career. Bergner related this tale to an actress and writer named Mary Orr who turned it into a short story called The Wisdom of Eve, which is where the movie gets its title. It was published in Cosmopolitan magazine in 1946. Along comes Joseph Mankiewicz, who'd been working on a story about an aging actress already, and after reading The Wisdom of Eve, he thought that a conniving ingenue would be a welcome addition. So he got producer Daryl uh, F. Zanuck to buy the rights to Orr's story and turned it into the movie All About Eve, which he both wrote and directed. Um, or actually got no on-screen credit 
but she did retain the rights to any non-film adaptations of which mm. there was one. Oh, uh, do, do tell. This is interesting because I've actually noticed that multiple films back in the older days had a transition period where a lot of them became musicals or musicals became films uh, and the plays as well, yeah. which was the case for Casablanca originally was a screen uh, stage play as we found out. I think when you're putting out less films, you know, at a higher clip that make, or that makes more sense than it does now. Yeah. Nowadays you can't do that, but a lot of great films that have a stagey, presence to them do end up getting Broadway adaptations. I mean, we've seen things well, and ones that don't like the Lion King (laughs) and Aladdin. um, Some of these Disney movies are getting adaptations, but La La Land is in the works and that makes sense, right? For that to become a musical. Fences started off as a stage play and then we Mm -hmm. got the film adaptation of that. So this is a very common thing, but it did. It also happened to All About Eve. It was turned into a Broadway musical called Applause. And it actually won the Tony for Best Musical in 1970. It starred Lauren Bacall as Margot Channing in the the Betty Davis role. And get this, when Lauren Bacall left the show, because obviously with theater, you usually don't do years and years of theater. One one show run for several months is plenty doing like three shows a day. She was replaced by Ann Baxter, who was the, the lead who played Eve in the film. So in a way, at long last, Eve actually succeeds at becoming Margot. How about that? 20 years later. Isn't that Mm -hmm. like so meta? That is so meta. Yeah. So I just thought that was pretty cool. The script for the musical was written by Betty Comden and Adolph Green, and they are the duo who created Singing in the Rain. Um, It had songs by Lee Adams and Charles Strauss, and they were responsible for Bye Bye Birdie and later Annie. Listeners, just so you know, I love musicals with a passion, and Bye Bye Birdie sits like probably in my top five, it's my stunner and my kind of surprise pick where everybody's it's, it's up there with my lame is and my wicked and, you know, phantom type picks. But for me, bye bye birdie is just wonderful. I absolutely love it. So that was pretty cool to see full admission. I have never seen it. Oh man. It's good. It's, I, I, I mean, I, gotta catch up. I, gotta I have catch to admit up. like people, everybody's not going to love it, but when you have that like high school musical connection to it, uh, when mm-hmm. you did it or saw it produced in your in your school years, there's just something about it. Dick Van Dyke is in it, and he's killer. I, I really loved Dick Van Dyke back in the day. So yeah, 20th Century Fox eventually gave permission to use All About Eve as the source material, um, and so they made this this uh, musical called Applause. Pretty cool, pretty cool. And they added a song, Man. and they called one of the songs "Fasten Your Seatbelts," kind of as a nod. Perfect, might as well. Yeah, yeah. So that's a lot of history, a lot of history about All About Eve. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not, I'm hoping that us covering this movie has encouraged people to watch it. And if you're listening right now, um, you're most likely probably a first time viewer. I would expect that not a lot of people have seen. This is one of those movies that doesn't get talked about in the same vein as Citizen Kane or right. Casablanca. And I've always kind of wondered why um, for me, I know it, I just didn't know anything about the story. I knew, I assumed that it was a female led driven story. I assumed it had something to do with feminism based on the title. This is, this is my assumption at the time. Um, so I just never looked into it. It didn't, 
sound interesting. Nobody talked about it. And, and so I never prioritized it. Was there any particular reason that it took you a while to get around to it? Uh, no, a bit of the same. I mean, obviously I'm not the generation that would have saw it. Um, it's before my parents' time as well. So it's not like something they would have seen that they would have been like, Oh yeah, I watched this movie as a kid. You got to see it. You know? Um, yeah, just it's in that, you know, it's in that gray area where I just, I just didn't catch it. I mean, now that I've seen it, it's not the super duper flashiest story in the world where it's not going to be, you know, I, I mean, it's, it's got this great quote. It's got some of these great lines and things like that. But this is the film that kind of, you know, despite all those nominations, it doesn't make the Oscar montages every year where you see these famous clips of these famous things to bring out the feels of the Oscars and all that. And hi, hey, we love movies. Don't you remember movies and all that? And I don't know. This one just never makes those rounds and never makes those places. It, it's yeah, I I. I I, I knew of it. Um, I knew it was about Hollywood, but no, I, I don't have a good excuse. Um, I'm not, you know, I wasn't a super Betty Davis guy. So it's not like I had like a hole or a, or I did a quest in terms of trying to find her or anything like that. Um, yeah. I mean, I, so I, I had all those little surprises in the film. Like we, we had some casting surprises. You had one from a gorgeous person. I had one from, um, George Sanders where, that's the voice of Sheer Khan from the Jungle Book for me, you know. And, oh my um, goodness! Never been- uh, and when you hear it, then you're like, oh gosh, that's so Sheer right. Khan. And then, um, as a as a as a comic dork, um, that's Mister Freeze from the old '60s Batman TV show, wow. or at least one of the first Mister Freeze. He was the first of three Mister Freezes. So, like, and same thing that inescapable voice. So, I like, oh, that's George Sanders. How about that? So, I, I knew that piece at least, but. Only because I saw the movie yesterday. I, I didn't think of it going in like, oh, this is a, a George Sanders blind spot for me. Nothing like that. So, yeah, no excuse at all. I, I, I got I got nothing. Well, I'm glad we took a chance on this one because I did mm-hmm. thoroughly enjoy it. And those those little kind of discoveries are really neat. I yeah. you know, I've heard the song so many times. She's got Betty Davis eyes. And mm-hmm. I didn't even I never put two and two together. Like I would sing that as if I knew exactly what she was talking about. Right. But in reality, I'd never even seen any Betty Davis films to my knowledge. Mm-hmm. Uh, I may have, but not like put two and two right. together. Yeah. And this is my first full Betty Davis sit as well. And that, that's my sacrilegious too. But I mean, this is kind of her big, huge, good one. So well, and it and it showed to me. It oh, was yeah. very so the Oscar nominations in short, I felt were completely warranted. With the exception of maybe one supporting actress, I believe it was the fourth, the fourth one. Uh, um, Birdie. Yeah. yeah. Birdie, the I think main. it was. The yeah. Main. yeah. So, uh, you know. Yeah, she, the Thelma Ritter, she's far funnier playing a bit of the same role in Rear Window than she uh, is in mm. this. Yeah. You know, so yeah, she's not a very uh, strong nominee. And honestly, I know uh, George Sanders, as much as I just wax poetically about George Sanders just now. I wouldn't have had him winning either. Like, I mean, he's good and all, but like, you know, I think one of the husbands and playwrights is better. He's know? Addison, right? He's the critic. Mm-hmm. So I, he's good. He's Don't got the wrong. Oscar moment though, because oh, yeah. he's got the, he's got the moment where he puts her in her place at the end of the film mm-hmm. and smacks her around and says, listen, you're not going to do this. And right. here's why I'm going to own you. And, and kind of gives her a dose of her own medicine. It's beautiful. It's just and midway, tables. And so and I'm, I'm pretty sure that's why. Right. And, and in midway, he's got that great, you know, linchpin moment speech that sets it all in motion where after the audition that, that, you know, that, uh, Margo was late for that Eve nails, like he, he's the one who tumbles the first domino that sends it all going in that great scene in the lobby hallway where between Margo and Addison, where just the back and forth, great speech, amazing dialogue. And I think Sanders nails that scene because once, once all that happens, 
then it's just more than fandom and we'll get to more themes and where this is going. But, um, I, yeah, I think he tumbles the first domino. I think that helps his, his, you know, his Oscar winning presentation too. And in a way it's, uh, Hollywood giving an Oscar to a film critic or a stage critic. That's uh that's kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. You know, this oh. movie actually was originally its working title was best performance. Can you imagine the conundrum? If this movie was the Oscar for best performance goes to, George Sanders for best performance. That you would know, be a little bit be a <laughs> Makes sense though as a working title because, like you said, the bookend of the film is the is this award acceptance situation here, so it would play. Well, I wondered if you thought that about the title. Did you notice or have any consideration for this being a little bit duplicitous in nature? Yeah, you know, um, not. I mean. I honestly, for uh, how do I say this in a blind spotty kind of way? I thought Eve was Betty Davis. You know, just title of the box, you know, picking it up at the movie, you know, yep. and, the, and the library shelf. I'm like, oh, I mean, this is Betty Davis. This movie, all we hear about is Betty Davis, Betty Davis, Betty Davis, where I figured the all about Eve was Betty Davis. And here it is the, the meek, mousy pro, you know, antagonist slash sub protagonist. So, oh, yeah, I was duped for sure. Yeah. And it's also, I think it has a double meaning because it's all about Eve Harrington. And that's you know told to us right off the bat with the narration by George Sanders as he's talking. I love the way that the film starts off at the end and then mm-hmm. we go back. I like movies that do that. Me too. But this, to me, it is about strong women. And in, a, in another way, it can easily be all about Eve in the sense of all about women. Eve being the mother of all women. Ooh, um, I like where you're going And there. so I thought that that was a real – I mean just as sharp and as tight as this script is – I have to believe that that's intentional. I think so too. You know, uh, what, you know, that, that if she, if she, Eve Harrington represents, you know, in metaphor, you know, first woman, first this, first that. Oh yeah. That's definitely, definitely. Well, on the cycle, I think it's all, I think this mm-hmm. film is, this film is totally about a cycle. Oh of, yeah. Of living up to fame and, you know, not being able to deal with that and stars and Hollywood aging yeah. themselves out. I wanted to and mention, I, and I didn't see that bookend coming. You know, oh, like I didn't either. The, the last four minutes of the movie, I'm like, ooh, we're going like memento here. Like we're we're writing a different name on the back of the Polaroid, and here we go. You know, it was my it mind was, very was blown clever. on that last. Oh scene. yeah, when it when uh, the Phoebe character uh, shows up mm-hmm. at uh, Eve's Eve's door, and he he asks her name, and she's like, I gave myself the name Phoebe. Or, you know, is that your, really your name? And she's like, well, it's the one I gave to myself. I had a ladybird moment too, where she's like, you know, like, oh, that's the name that I call myself, given to me by myself, right? Um, but the way that that kind of comes together after Eve has gotten, it just, oh man, it, it the story is such, it's so great. Um, and, and it's because of that script. All of Absolutely. that, we're ta- everything we're talking about is narrative and is mm-hmm. part of that script. So you and I both mentioned it right off the bat. Like I texted you when I started writing the movie and I said reading or watching the movie and I said, script, script. Oh my God. Uh huh. It's good. It, it's extremely good. I mean, each line and dialogue and the, and the reads of it and the way each character is given such rich detail to play. It, it's just delicious in terms of the words and the flawlessness and, and some of that's performance. Don't get me wrong. Like George Sanders, I mean, with his amazing voice and accent can, can really squeeze, you know, different tone out of every line and and so can so can betty davis but then but then you balance it with somebody like ann baxter taking this lead and convincingly giving play have playing this duplicitous role uh, or this because 
because this is a villain that doesn't have super duper, you know, tropey, stereotypical menace. She, I mean, she pulls the wool underneath me for the longest time. Like, all right, you, you, you see where she's going and you get a hint like, oh, wow, she's really going to replace or emulate and do all these things like that. But because it's never really grossly over the top because of the lines, because of the writing, because of the way it is built, that's just brilliancy to me where it's, it's just so incredibly impressive. I think in a very classical way, like not a, not a stitch of this film feels ad-libbed, you know, like I think today, a lot of the scripts we point at for being so conversational and so amazing, like, uh, like great scripts that, that, that come across our wavelength here in the aughts in the 2010s is we love those ad libby rapid fire kinds of, you know, films where, where everything's kind of loosey goosey and, and t- take Quentin Tarantino where, where things are meant to be very conversational. And so for this to be, and maybe unscripted. So for this to be so razor sharp and I, and I have to feel like, cause it just seems like it, that every word is on the page. That's where it's going. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, it does, it feels like a script that would work now. I don't think that it is something that is stuck back in the past. Uh, I feel like you could almost just remake it right now and it would, scene for scene, word for word, still be nearly perfect and it would still have the same weight and have the same kind of, uh, I don't know, getting out Hollywood feel yeah. to it that it does here. Absolutely. I think the, the, just the, that damning examination of career spans in the talent industry, the, the idea of gender roles and competitive hierarchy of stardom and the, the ageism that we still have today. I mean, you hear Meryl Streep, you know, piss and moan about it all the time. Every chance she gets that there, that there are no roles in Hollywood for women in their forties, you know, that, you know, you're a young in, ingenue and, and you have your moment in the twenties, but you hit, you hit 30 and it slows down, you hit 40 and it's gone. I mean, in our lifetime, I made a list on our notes where, I mean, I, I look at those 80s and 90s that we grew up on the most and the list of names that were were titanic actresses then, we don't hear from now unless it's no. a mom role. You know, yeah. so Michelle Pfeiffer, Sigourney yeah. Weaver, Kelly McGillis, even Jodie Foster, um, an Oscar winner and, and a filmmaker now, Jamie Lee Curtis, Kim Basinger, Gina Davis, Elizabeth Shue. I think Diane Lane has, has survived better than most, but because, that's because she takes the mom roles. You know, I mean, she hasn't had a good meaty part to do of her own since probably Unfaithful, and that was 15 years ago. So, Same with Julia Roberts, who the next one on your list. I yeah. mean, her last two roles are, I think, Wonder, she's the mom. Yeah. Uh, of a kid and then going through some stuff uh, physically and in love Simon, I believe she's a mom yeah. again. Right. Or is that, no, that's Jennifer Garner. Yeah. But even she, so she like it'd be in the same boat. Right. I mean, Jennifer Garner is no more than 40, 45 years old. So, I mean, we're seeing this transition now of all those 90, I was listing off eighties people. So now you have the nineties people who are hitting, you know, forties and fifties and, and it's just not happening for them where we see them now in a film like Michelle Pfeiffer and mother were like, Oh wow, look at that. Michelle Pfeiffer, boy, she still got it. You know, we have those little moments where we have these, you still, she still has it moments where they never lost it. Hollywood lost them. And that's the unfortunate thing that I think is well examined by this film. And you're right, can be remade today and you would still hit every nail of every head. You update the scenes, make some social media parts to it. Like you could easily make a, a 2018 version of this film and it would play. Other than that though, I mean, I think if you look at the next generation, like Amy Adams just turned 42, you know, Kate Winslet's 40. Like we're going to see those actresses from our, from the two thousands lose it next. 
Now, I think there's still room because they're so talented that they're going to get great roles. And look at Amy Adams. She's always in something very good. Kate Winslet's amazing. So I think most people hold up really well. But at the same time, I just love that theme of ageism. You know, I think it, I, I think if there's a, I don't know if it'll be my life lesson at the end of the, at the end of our telecast here a little bit, but like, yeah, that's, I love it. It's a good thing. Well, we talked a little bit about how this kind of mirrors Sunset Boulevard, which released the same year. And you can think of this in a early Hollywood version of Armageddon Deep Impact. Uh, Hollywood has this huge tradition of, it seems like, movies about the same thing coming out. In Sunset Boulevard, though, I know you haven't seen it. The differences are that it is covering a film star from the silent film era. And I think it's very uniquely done because sunset Boulevard takes a much more colorful kind of approach. Uh, it's like a big production type of approach to the, to the way that this story is told this. It's the same thing. This old star is, you know, being replaced and, and just unable to cope with no longer being the big cheese. And she doesn't have an identity anymore. And that's what's happening to Margot. And in here we have a theater actress. And I think that, all about Eve really captures that well by staying more dramatic and slower without big sets, without the color. And it keeps it very, much more confined, which is what you're going to find in the theater versus on a movie screen. Yeah. I mean, Sunset Boulevard, so it's a, it's another blind spot for me. And, and after seeing this, I can't wait to see it. I, I, I got to seek that out next. I think you're going to like it. Me too. I really do. Um, I, I watched it for the first time last year and I loved it. And I went back and looked at my review of it. And it's interesting because the first thing that I wrote down was, well, I'm a guy who loves great scripts and this one blew my socks off. So it's mm -hmm. another one that it is just phenomenal. And it makes me wonder where are those all at nowadays? I mean, we had, oh, gosh, I know these are two that I legitimately could not have picked between at Oscar time. Yeah. And they would have blown away pretty much any script I've read in the last however many years. Yeah. Um, I, I don't yeah. know what the reasoning for that is. I don't know if I think you mentioned kind of the, the hip nature of trying to be trendy and relevant. Right. I think people really try to like, I, I mean, I think realism can be found in, in scripted ways as much as they can be found in unscripted ways. I mean, you just have to be really good with the way you script it. So I, I, I know everyone's trying to get this, this, this realism. And I, I think they're always trying to get performance first writing second nowadays where they want the actor and the, and the, and the, and the, the flashy stuff to be on screen, not on the page. But I think if you don't have flashy stuff in the page, you're not going to get flashy stuff in the picture. So I'm, yeah, I, I, I do grasp with those straws and wonder where, where, where are the all about ease and the sunset boulevards of today's the, the sharp scripts that are just so ironclad. And I hate to say the word classical, but just the idea where they're just professional and proper and, and not, not written on paper napkins and not written on in, in a weekend in a, in a weekend stupor somewhere like that just are. And especially with the, like you're saying with the, with the central themes of where are the ones that have like the big issues and the big topics? Like, I don't know. I, I'm trying to think of the last, you know, Hollywood skewering is Birdman the last thing that would be about this wavelength? Probably. Or I mean, yeah. In some ways La La Land is. Yeah. But it's Birdman is probably the more apt. And and I've soured on it over the years. Yeah. Would you call that a good screenplay? 
or more of a, a feat of performance. I would actually. I don't. I don't love the movie, but I would call it a good screenplay. Yes, I would yeah. call it a very above average screenplay. I'm with you there. Um, but it's it's because it's surreal that it's tougher to evaluate. I think. Right, because modern it's day great. Right? Modern day greats to me are, are people like Linkletter, um, PTA. When it comes to writing, uh, they're very good. It, even Wes Anderson, who I've been going through now recently and his filmography, his writing is, is incredibly snappy and yes. layered to yeah. where you That's can, it, like anybody this. can take it in, but you're going to get the, the meaning. Um, and so, yeah, I can see, I can see those guys, but there's, there's just not a ton. Yeah. On the spot, Interesting. which one is the better film all about Eve or sunset Boulevard for me? After yeah. one viewing of each, I would go all about Eve. I really love this movie. And they're, they're both five-star movies to me. I, oh, I think yeah. that they both earn their place. Um, I was actually made a tweet out earlier today about how I do my top 100 list. And I'm trying to do it kind of every year around my birthday. So it's about a month away, at least while I'm watching so many classical films. And I've taken so many in in the last year that I, my list is going to be just a completely different animal than it was. Yeah. Yeah, Because I mean, I'm, I've got Casablanca for the first time. I've got this sunset Boulevard for the first time. There's so many 12 angry men for the first time, Mm -hmm. but man, yeah. Going through this process, you see why we are encouraging you all to be watching more classic films because it it is just a great thing to take in and they're enjoyable. They're not just there to watch for, Whatever reasons, you know, Citizen Kane perhaps might be the one that I would say I don't enjoy that much. I My sure. enjoyment of it is related to my understanding of the techniques and the way in which it was made. Yeah. So it's, it's more of watching it with a respect than it is sure. enjoying it as a story. But many of these are great stories. I um, agree. We've got buried treasure everywhere on on most of these lists. And and and. and and I and for those for the uninformed out there that we that we, t- that we tend to reach with these shows, it, that's a good thing. Like, go see the roots of where some of these other films have borrowed. The films that they like now all borrowed from these films. You know, you don't have. I know Birdman is a terrible example, but you don't have a Birdman without films like this. You don't have a La La Land without Barbara Birdie and some of these other musicals. Like, these have become cinematic roots, and and they're worth looking at because then you can see where inspirations came from for the filmmakers of today because the guys that are still kicking today when you when you talk to when you ask steven spielberg and martin scorsese where they get their influences from it's from these films when they were kids you know they'll tell you a a michael curtis adventure film inspired what they want to do in 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 a in a serial film you know you you have george lucas who goes back to kurosawa you know so all of those roots are important because they there's enough commonality there that Good stories can that are are timeless, and you, when you find a good one that's done well, it's it's completely worth the experience. Well, something else that speaking of is that I learned in this film, and it was a good experience for me. That was the first one was I spied Marilyn Monroe, and uh, I don't have a huge history with Marilyn Monroe. I know of Marilyn Monroe, of course, everyone knows of Marilyn Monroe, but to me, she's really was just a legend that. Mm-hmm everyone else had a crush on and believe that she's one of the most beautiful women in the world. And that had this, you know, incredible career and all these stories around her life and her lifestyle. But for me, I I haven't seen her in anything where I gravitated toward her and thought, 
it, nothing that she starred in. And so I will tell you this. Before I knew she was Marilyn Monroe, this young actress walks on the set playing Miss Caswell. Mm-hmm. And I paused the movie because she lit up the room in a way that very few mm-hmm. actresses or actors, and I have ever seen do this, but the moment that she walked in, and yes, she's wearing a white outfit, but this is a black and white movie. I, I kid you not, it felt like rays of sunlight oh, yeah. illuminating the screen. And so I was like, who is this person? And I looked it up, and it's Marilyn Monroe, and I was, and my jaw dropped. Yeah. And I had no idea she was in this film. Oh, so my was- goodness. And it is, she... She has one really one or two scenes. Mm-hmm. This was during her up and coming years, but she's fantastic. She has a bite to her and she steals it. Like a you can bit. tell right away, like, okay, this woman has acting chops. But yeah, her legendary beauty, I could not be more in awe of when I saw her in this film. So that was amazing. It makes me want to seek out more of her films for sure, because I haven't seen them. Some like it hot. Oh, um, that's none that of them. start. I mean, well, her best, or at least the best film she's in, maybe it's not where she's the best, but some like it hot is a top 10, a top 10. If I'm making a best list, it's darn close. So it, I mean, it helps that Jack Lemon and Tony Curtis are so amazing, but seven year itch. Um, some like it hot. Yeah. Those are the two places to start for sure. Another little note about her is that it's interesting. She barfed on the set of this movie because she was so nervous. So like I said, she was just breaking into the movie business when she got this role. It was one of her up and coming roles. And she felt grossly intimidated by all the experience because this room at the time is just full of Hollywood A-list personalities and talented people in the cast. And she was nervous and insecure. And it took her 11 takes to get through this scene where she talks to Margot after a failed audition. And it's a very brief scene, but it still took her a while. And when it was finally done, Betty Davis, who is known to have a temper, snapped at her. And Marilyn Monroe exited the set and immediately went and vomited. So, I Man. mean, it, it gives some – I like nuggets like that because it puts yeah. some humanity behind the actors. And one of the interesting things about All About Eve to me was that both Eve's character and Margot's character, they're living in this place where they almost can't be themselves. And that is part of their struggle. It's like they're always acting. Like this is what they know. Mm-hmm. This is how they know to survive. And that's why the film comes across as so melodramatic is because they're actors. They're acting. That early scene with Eve when she is um, in the dressing room when she first meets Margot, you don't really know this until later. But when you realize she's acting, like Eve, mm-hmm. Eve is acting in the film, Kate is, but like she's – I mean, uh, Baxter is acting in the film, but she is um, acting as a character as well. And right. so you kind of get the impression like you it's hard to know, right? Margot right. does this. She puts up that wall and she yeah. acts. Mar- Margot's is, is incredibly obvious because of the stature of her character where, right, as this great, huge thespian actress, she she is that person. But then when she gets off stage and we see her in all these private moments, in fact, uh, do we see Bet- Betty Davis's character 
play any role for longer than a couple of minutes. Like this is an entirely almost behind the scenes film in in a way, like a movie within a movie kind of thing. So, but you're right. Like the impression she feels like she has to put up in front of the men in her life, the impression she has to put up to sass around her maid, you know, film, you know, to, and all that with Thelma Ritter. And absolutely. She, she is 100% on, you know, on her own internal camera of like, all right, I have, I have, a, I have to, I have composure. I have to represent. I have this air that this nature I have to be. I'm, I'm Margo. I'm the star. I have to always be on. And I feel like, a good comp to today is who I never feel like is real. It, it, no matter when you see them, especially in, in public appearances beyond all that, like Tom Cruise, Tom Cruise to me is a guy who is always on. That is the, one of the most filtered and refined images of, of public images I've seen in a star where on screen, he wants to be exactly who he's always been this action star that just blows the doors off things. But when he's off screen it, it, to his credit, it's a work ethic. He's a tireless promoter, but that image, like I'm always going to be this. I'm never going to look too short. I'm going to have this perfect hair. I'm going to walk this red carpet. And even in, even in casual appearances, when he's on, you know, on a talk show like Jimmy Fallon or something like that, to me, he's always on. He's always Tom Cruise. Like I don't think we ever, I don't think we ever see like just Tom. You yeah. know, I think it's so rare. I don't, he especially to me is a comp here for, for when I thought of like a, what it was a Margot equivalent today, not necessarily a diva, but just what would be a person who's always on. Yeah. And that was Tom for me. Yeah. I think that's a good one. Well, let's uh, roll into our connecting points and our lessons and we'll probably get to more of our kind of emotional and logical thoughts on the film through those. Sure. So for connecting points, uh, do you want to hit yours first? Absolutely. Thank you much. Yeah. Um, mine, mine does come earlier than yours. So I'll, I'll definitely bow in. So early in the film, uh, Eve, pret- uh, has this moment where she pretends to kind of bow on this, on an empty stage in an empty theater house, uh, with kind of clutching and holding on one of Margot's dresses. And for her, it's this kind of moment where, you know, what she wants and what, with the, 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 the chance to kind of, grab and, and nestle and hug this dream and play it for a few seconds. But Margot catches her and gives her this kind of dismissive talking to, trying to remind the girl of her place. And and Eve, who like you're kind of seeing in the way we're talking about here, who's kind of always on and always trying to look meek and look less and it kind of be very understated in the way that she's sneaky. Um, she kind of feigns being kind of apologetic. Um, and for me, um, this was kind of the moment for me where this little scene of emulation reveals kind of the first glint at Eve's true ambitions beyond just kind of being around and, and tagging along with this idolized star. Like this is where she goes from being groupie to being like, yeah, a, a, a top 25 villain where like, whoa, wait, she, she wants to live in this person's skin. Like and not in a horror movie, this would be a ridiculous trope and, and taken too far. And, or this would be a, a, you know, a Glenn close moment in, in a different film of like, I'm going to pretend and change my hairstyle. Like if that's the probably the one the that comes to mind for me is neon demon. Oh gosh. Honestly. Yeah. You know, like, like this they is a situation. <laughs> this is a situation where if it were made today, it, they would, they wouldn't be this subtle, you know, they would, they would overdo it. But for this scene, I just love that it's just a glint. Like it's not a, a full on release of this villain, villainy or villainess, you know, um, but it's just just a glint of her true ambitions. And we see then that she really wants stardom, not just tagging along, not just stealing a little bit of air and presence from a star. She wants what she's got, what, what Margot has. And just 
uh, that it's a visualization of kind of the, uh, that the visualizations that she clearly, that the Eve character has had in her mind. This is the first moment where we see them become outward actions where to me, this is probably not the first time she's done this. This is just the first time our cameras caught it and Margo's caught it where I bet she's maybe looked in a mirror, worn her hair, certainly stolen an earring. Who knows? You know, like I bet this easily isn't the first time. And because this is now the first time we see it and, and, and been shown this behavior of pretending um, it's kind of that, again, it's that moment where the Eve character just becomes more complex, more enigmatic for me and where she stopped being kind of a leech and more of a possible predator. And that's where like, I don't know, the movie turned for me at that moment. And, and, or, or again, it was just kind of that first hint of, wait, this can go a different place than just observing a star. Like I said, tagging along and all that. So this was kind of cemented as my connecting point because um, especially when that exact scene becomes the last scene of the movie callback where, because it's not a very big moment, like I said, it's not a very flashy moment. It's not an overplayed moment, but the fact that that's the place where you end it, that's where like, Oh, yep. Back then, then that, that's my connecting point. Like it, that's where the cement kind of laid for me because um that was kind of the first scene that really fascinated me and then made me want to see that, that just, it, it, that's the place where, the cycle started and, and now that they were, you know, definitely playing this to be a cycle that might always be ongoing. I went back to the first, you know, the first, you know, the first kick of the dirt of where it happened. So um, it's just all of that in its subtlety, in its writing, in, in it's because that's one of the more dialogueless film scenes of the film, at least until Margaret starts talking. It's right. just really thematically impressive. I, I just, I love that little, it, it counts as a little moment. I don't think it's a show stopping moment. It's not an Oscar performance clip moment it's not a big speech but it just that's where it turned for me and i really love it yeah i i think it's a great one and i agree it's it's definitely that moment where you kind of perk up a little bit as you're watching the movie and you go oh hmm huh weird wonder what's going on here and as an audience member and as a a movie watcher it gets you engaged more than you already were and it makes your brain start turning and your wheels going and you're like hey now i'm looking for this to be happening in the future and my connecting point is actually going to happen pretty much right after that uh bill and dewitt are talking about the stage career near miss caswell and eve it's at the party and i'm gonna read a little bit of this dialogue frankly because i didn't want to get through this podcast without reading dialogue because it's just so freaking good so dewitt says every so often some elder statesman of the theater reminds the public that actors and actresses are just plain folks, completely ignoring the fact that their whole attraction is the complete lack of resemblance to ordinary human beings. We, we all have that abnormality in common. We're a complete breed apart from the rest of humanity, we theater folk. We are the original displaced personalities. Bill says, I'll admit there's a screwball element in the theater. It's got spotlights on it and a brass band, but it isn't basic. To be a good actor or actress or anything else in the theater means wanting to be that thing more than anything else in the world. Mm -hmm. Eve, very softly, responds, yes, yes, it does. Bill says, it means concentration of desire or ambition and sacrifice such as no other profession demands. And I'll agree that the man or woman who accepts those terms cannot be ordinary. They can't be just somebody. To give so much for almost always so little. And this, to me, is when Eve steps it up a notch. 
And I realize the depth that she probably is going to go to because she says, so little, so little did you say? Why, if there's nothing else, there's applause. I've listened backstage to people applaud. It's like waves of love coming over the footlights and wrapping you up. Imagine to know every night that different hundreds of people love you. They smile and their eyes shine. You've pleased them. They want you. You belong. Just that alone is worth anything. This scene, I really, yeah, and I feel like like they tie, I mean, this is the thing. This is why it's a great screenplay because your moment is a subtle one. Yeah. Get your, get your, get your perked up. Mine is that next level where mm-hmm. now we go, okay, we saw what she was probably going to be doing. Gosh, now we're starting to see where she might be going and what she's capable of and how much it means to her. Her soft agreement that success requires obsession, but then it's that disagreement with Bill. And to me, it really shows her reverence for the art form in that last sentence. And it makes me feel very mixed because she is clearly going to manipulate her way to the top because she wants it so bad. And for anyone who has felt that passion and that desire to achieve something in their life, it can be overwhelming and it can be controlling and it's almost understandable. I know almost right. You almost. know, like, you said it earlier in the, in the, in the, in our show here, like she, she has protagonist qualities that just happens to be the antagonist of the film. And that's where, this becomes so much smarter and so much sharper than just like we, like I've been saying like tropes and stereotypes, the the overplaying this, the the nuance here and it comes from the page. It's just so sharp. And I think that at the same time, we, we don't quite go all the way to her as a hero or as, as someone we're going to be empathetic to, because it's also naive to me to assume that people applauding you is the equivalent of love you because Mm -hmm. Then I feel a little bit sorry for her because she is seeking to fill that love tank up with something that is ultimately unsustainable as yeah. Margot is a perfect example of. And it's, it's just that that praise can be so addictive to us in our lives. And I, I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. And yeah. that moment for me gives me such a broadened view of what Eve's character is all about. And I can yeah. relate to it in some ways, to be honest. Sure. No, that's a fantastic pick. And I, and I like how you say just the consuming part of it. Like uh, it, when, when love lacks someplace else, you're going to seek it in, uh, in a good word, unsustainable places. And, and that's, that's, ter- that's her and where this is going to a T. And the fact that this movie elevates that to make it cyclical with, with this kind of ending coda makes you realize, wow, not just unsustainable, you know, it, it will, it'll come back and beat you down and, and chew you up and spit you out as if you were next. All right. Well, let's go and do our takeaways next. And I'll go ahead and lead off with this one since you let off with the connecting points. So my takeaway for this, my lesson is about accepting the love of others. And this is a very difficult thing for most humans to do, to be honest, at least in the current time, uh, it's pretty tough. And there's some more great dialogue here that, that resonated with me. There's a couple scenes that kind of put this together. It's not one scene. It's just a theme. Bill, who is Margot's lover, there's a great moment early on when Eve has secretly called him and it's on his birthday and she's kind of working the, the, the wheels behind the, the uh, curtain there to get Margot on the phone with him. 
And he's like telling her to say it. He wants her to say it. He wants her to sing things to him. And she can't quite make that connection. She can't quite go that far. And later on in the film, she started to break down. She's realized what Eve is doing and she's starting to feel like she's lost. Eve has gotten the part. She's faked out, you know, the understudy whole, whole shebang and gotten to read for the part. And Margot feels defeated. And Bill is talking to her and he's trying to tell her, listen, you don't need that. Stop concentrating on Eve. And he says, it's about time you found out I love you. I love you. And it's first time he said it in the movie. So it's very powerful and strong. And they go on and they have a conversation. And Margot is unable to grasp the importance of that, even though she's told us throughout the whole film that that's what's most important to her. So ultimately, he can't get her to accept his love and believe in herself, even though he's praising her. Because she is too paranoid and she will not quit blaming Eve for everything. And as he is leaving... Sadly, saying he won't ever believe that their story could end this way because he doesn't want it to be this way, but he cannot get through to her. The last thing that she asks him is, are you going to see Eve? Because she still cannot, like he's just professed his love for her. He's just given her all this. And it's something that we have such a hard time believing others when they, when they make that proclamation. And I felt it really strong there. And then later, Margot is lamenting that her identity is in being a star and that Bill won't love her once she no longer is one. It's a great scene where the car breaks down and Bill leaves and she's sitting in the car yeah. talking to Karen and she defines in her opinion what a woman is. Um, it's just, it's fantastic writing. Um, and I urge everybody to kind of really pay attention to that when you're watching the movie or if you watch it again, maybe you did this time. But once she learns to accept the love that he's been trying to give her at the end of the film, they end up being able to be married and happy together. And it all hinges on her acceptance of him and her ability to say, I know that you love me and I am going to let that love be enough and be sustaining for me. As opposite, as opposed to what Eve is struggling with, where she needs that audience praise. And so Bill sticks by Margot because he loves her. And he says this numerous times. He's very open about it, despite her imperfections, which he calls out. He does love her for who she is, and it's all about her just letting it be accepted. So accepting the love that others have for you is a hard thing in our lives, but it's something that I think we need to make an effort to do. Uh, it doesn't just happen naturally sometimes. Very well said, well done, sir. That That's fantastic. Perfect. That's the kind of thing you're looking for. Like, what's a lofty thing that goes beyond just the film and movie? Um, my life lesson here a little bit, it would, if I had to narrow it, it would be just the idea of the the toxic ambition. Uh, is where I'm going to go, where just the, 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 um, the deterrence of it, you know, um, because to circle back to Ebert, you know, this being kind of the quintessential, you know, Hollywood kind of, you know, back, back stabbing kind of story. I think there's something to be said here for, for the idea of just ambition and how ambition isn't always good. And like you nailed it earlier with the idea of, of love. Like, you know, if this for Eve is the only way she can get love is, is emulating and stealing it from somebody else and is seeking the, you know, the applause and the, and the acclaim from other people, but never finding any of her own or being able to do that on her own without theft or the borrowing of this and that. So the route that she takes with her ambition and not having it be uh, self-created and self-made and in that, in those directions of being more pure, I guess I should say that this is such a toxic form that 
it, it's going to ruin lives. It's going to ruin hers. It's going to ruin Margot's. It's going to ruin a spouse or a person that, she, that she's going to put behind her stardom and work, whoever that's going to be in her life and all that. And just how to get there to, to, to whatever she has to feel the quickest ladder is, is all built on deception. It's all built on lies. It took me out of the film for a second in the very beginning of the film where I watched it and I, and I started to yawn. I'm not going to lie was when she's kind of giving her little sad stop, you know, sad stop life story of what, where, who she is and how she got here and all that. And, and watching how she's kind of delivering that. And when we know, when we learn later that that was such a ruse and how it's all part of, like you said, her being on and her being kind of fake and her, even her performance outside of what performance she wants to put on screen. Even when there's that, like the the fact that a person has reached a place where she she he or she I should say needs all that deception and all that 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 fakery just to get the hint and hit of fulfillment is toxic. Like you gotta find more sustainable ways to to find encouragement in your life, to find celebration in your life, to find. And if you need it, but that bad acclaim or acceptance, all of that. And there's a toxic version of that. And we see that thankfully and smartly in such a subtle, slow building way in this film where I've been I'm banging this too much in the show. But the idea is in different hands, this film would make it just would be just grossly curved in, in a different direction and, and not narrow and, and have this many moving parts and, and more complicated themes. It would just be it would just be stereotypes. It, it, it would be so obvious, so a toxic choice. It would be so obvious of a, a character trait because there's so many subtleties layered in here where maybe Margo's the villain for putting this girl down this whole time. We don't know that going into the going, you know, a third of the way into the film. Like maybe Margo's put, putting this poor girl down and she really is something talented. And then we realize, nope, nope, it's her the whole time. So the idea of toxic ambition and how so many characters in this film have it, especially Eve, but even Margot's got it too. So that she has to put on this face and, and all that. So my life lesson is just the the wrong form of ambition. I know the buzzword now is to say the word toxic, but um, yeah, the negative side Good. of ambition. Good. No, that's, that's definitely what it's showing. Um, and I, and it's, it's amazing to me, you know, that Hollywood would be so self critique, self critical, rather of their own way of life in, in a way, you know, well, quick question for you in, in this kind of department. Would it, we, we said earlier that this film could be remade with ease because the, the topics are still here between ages and hierarchy and all that women's place and all that. If this film were, were made today in, in the same way where we're celebrating it for how it was, was celebrated then with the 14 Oscar nominations, would it fall on deaf ears today? Or in the in the post Me Too, would, would this be as celebrated, or would this be would this be kind of um, put down or shot down like being too crass or too, I, I guess not cynical, but just um, I don't know. Would would this be as polarizing made today, or would it have to be over amplified to even be polarizing? It, no, it would not. It would not have the same effect at all. It would be probably received with an incredible amount of cynicism. Yeah, And instead of people saying, oh, hey, good job for actually looking at yourself through this lens and kind of providing a, a means for us to critique you, they would probably look at it and make some cracks about how, you know, it's not real. It's fake. Hollywood's trying too hard. They're being tryhards, you know, like that's that's the concept that a lot of people, I think, would probably assign to it now. But yeah, whatever. I mean, who knows? It's it's. 
luckily we still have it and we can still watch it and it's still applicable. Even though this is theater, it works for Hollywood too. Certainly. No, I, I think this film is an, an easily openable time capsule, you know, I mean, because, because, because there are some parallels that still exist. You can come back to a film like this and go, wow, the, the way we're seeing it, it could play today. It matches today just in a different way. And I, we can say things have progressed a little bit, but no, not really, especially the way we've seen this last year ago where women's roles, uh, you know, um, equal pay, gender, gender inequality, you know, because all those things happen. I think, I think, yeah, I think a film like this made today would probably be over politicized. And that's, that's unfortunate because I don't feel like there's that level of agenda in this film. It's just two people uh, and the people who orbit around them trying to feel out where this is going. It's not, I don't know. There's not some fist shaking agenda in this film. And I I like it. I would agree. Well, that's, pretty good for this one i think uh it gives people a lot to chew on hopefully and we're excited to hear what you thought of all about eve so please do come to the facebook group you can find us on facebook through just searching out feeling film you can find links in the show notes or on the website and uh, find the post that is for this episode all about eve and drop your thoughts drop a link to your review something you'll get entries into the drawing at the end of the year but you'll also get to have some great conversation with other people who watched the film recently Uh, If you'd like to talk to me further, you can do that by finding me online anywhere at Aaron L. White, A-A-R-O-N-E-L-W-H-I-T-E. And I'm also tweetering, twittering, tweeting. Twittering. Sure, sure. uh, sure. Out of the Feelin' Film account at Feelin' Film. Dom, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, Search whatever you like for Every Movie Has a Lesson. That's everymoviehasalesson.com. You can also search that term on Facebook, Twitter, and otherwise. Um, I think there's an Instagram I never touch or use, but if you really want to find follow me there, go go for it. Um, That's the easiest place to find me. I'm having a blast uh, participating in this series and in the Feeling Film Discussion Group. Uh, We have some some hot topics and issues, and I, I love when these come up. So do we dare drop and say what we're doing next month, Aaron? Oh, all right. Well, next, um, with this being 2018, uh, some of the things that we've been doing with our AFI list is trying to find pertinent and, and noteworthy anniversaries. So if, for those of you who are good at math, because the school teacher's sitting here, things that end in threes and things that end in fives, because we can have, or we can have, or things that end in eights, because we can have anniversaries, anniversaries that land on zeros and fives. So, um, April is the, um, April's next month, and we're trying to find something kind of in that kind of way. And 1953's uh, Western Shane is coming up on its 65th anniversary. And with um with Shane kind of being prominently brought back up a little bit with the movie for, with Logan last year, it's um we thought it would be a good time to revisit one of the more higher ranking. I think it might be the second highest ranked Western on the AFI list. I think the search is ahead of it. You'll have to but, come um, next episode to find out. Uh, that's true. Uh, it'll be in the history section. But uh, if I'm memory serves me right is one of only two westerns on the afi top 100 list and it uh for me it's my number one western so um tease for april we'll be doing shane sounds great i'm excited so folks stay positive and keep connecting with classics <laughs>